Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another special episode of the Catholic Talk Show. We're going to be looking at what is holiness with Dr. Scott Hahn. That's right. We're going to be taking a look at Dr. Hahn's new book, uh, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. And we're going to explore what actually is this holiness thing that all Christians are striving after. You know, right off the bat strikes me, John Michael Talbot, our good friend, holy is his name. And holy, holy, holy is his name. It's holy. Father Hanky. as Catholics, we're called to this universal call to holiness. Um, and so I can't think of a better person to examine this with than you, Dr. Scott Hahn. Welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Ryan. And uh, somebody mentioned uh, John Michael Talbot. And yes, he did endorse this book. But I called him up because he's a good friend. And uh, the title of the manuscript was originally Holy, Holy, Holy. And then in Mass, at the end of a Marian feast, we sang... John Michael's song, Holy is His Name. And I just had the sense that's a better title. So I called him and I said, can No I, way. <laughs> I said, Can I borrow it? He said, Sure, on one condition. I'm coming out with just a little pamphlet <laughs> on the Magnificat. If you endorse mine, I'll endorse yours. <laughs> and he came out almost the exact same time with his little booklet, Holy is His Name, and this uh, slightly bigger book, Holy is His Name. And so, a shout out to my good friend of many, many years. That's so beautiful. And, you know, collectively, we've we've shared about John Michael Talbot's music and how, you know, as we're all 40 year olds and and that's how we grew up in the in the faith and the church. So this this hymn in particular is one that's very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, when you reflect on the holiness of God and that God manifests his name you know, the scripture that comes to mind, Dr. Han, is from Ezekiel, and I've been meditating on this this morning, but this is Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, verse 42. As a pleasing odor, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And the sense of God manifesting holiness, like this is this is a mystery. I mean, like each of us have experienced certain people who are holy and, and it's like an impact, but what is it? You know, it's like glory. Like what is glory? It's it's such a, um, it's such a mystery. And I'm really excited about hearing some of the fruits of your work in this, this book that's out right now. Yeah. I mean, the book itself is the product of uh, two long processes. Uh, if you can picture a double rainbow, the top arc would be going back 50 years to my own conversion as a teenage delinquent. And I talk about that in the opening of the book. Uh, the lower rainbow arc would be, um, would be what I did about 20 years ago, which is called the Land of Suffering, the where I discovered the holiness of the Mass. And so what I would do to answer the question would be first to point out what was hiding in plain view, what I didn't see. And that is people really don't understand what holiness is. And they've got a series of, you know, options that are all somewhat mistaken. 
because holiness is mysterious and it's closely related to uh, a variety of things like glory, as you mentioned it, like righteousness as well. But to confuse holiness with righteousness would be in effect to confuse the priest with the king, the temple with the palace, the sanctuary with, say, um, the royal courtyard or something, uh, the, the throne room. Uh, and one of the most important passages to help us clarify it is in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this opening vision where he receives his own call as a prophet. And it begins in the year that King Uzziah died, which seems to be nothing more than a temporal marker. You know, it just tells us, when did Isaiah have this vision? Well, the vision is the Lord sitting upon a throne as the king of the universe, high and lifted up. And his glory fills the temple, but it isn't the man-made temple in the earthly Jerusalem. It's a divine temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so he sees the seraphim, he describes them, and then he hears them chanting, holy, holy, holy. Mm -hmm. And it just rocks mm -hmm. the foundations where Isaiah mm -hmm. is. And, you know, you'd, you'd half expect Isaiah as a young prophet who's being called to begin what will end up being a prophetic ministry of over half a century. You'd expect this young man to say, this is so cool. I mean, wow. <laughs> but instead, he, he cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Zabaoth, which is sort of like the Lord of the angelic armies. And the thing that is so important is to recognize that the year that King Uzziah died was a very auspicious moment because King Uzziah was the 10th in the line of the Davidic dynasty. And he had extended the boundaries of Israel and Judah beyond what anybody else had done. He'd also caused the economy to flourish, to prosper. You know, he was making Israel great again, you could say. And uh, he was so flush with success that uh, he let it go to his head. And so one day, as we read in Second Chronicles, he takes a stroll out of the palace into the temple, and the priests see him coming. They try to prevent, they try to discourage, but he just continues on into the sanctuary, where only priests are allowed. And as they're calling out to him to stop and proceed no further, suddenly they see what he sees, and that is he's covered with leprosy. Mm. And so they drag him out of the temple, lest he pollute it anymore. And they can't take him back to the palace. They set up what must have been a makeshift royal leper colony for him, where he ends up dying in agony shortly thereafter. At the height of his success and at the height of his pride, he confused the righteousness that is administered in terms of justice and the law with the holiness that is distinct in the sanctuary with sacrifice and priesthood. And so we might say state and church, but it's not, it's not that simple. Righteousness has to do with the second table of the Decalogue, the last seven commands that are all horizontal in terms of our human relatedness. Uh, beginning with honoring our parents and so on. Whereas holiness talks about the first table of the law, the highest command, which even rabbis recognized. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, but that's the righteousness. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself for the love of God. And so when I look back 50 years ago, 
I realized that as a Protestant studying under the late great Dr. R.C. Sproul, holiness was front and center in a way that was life-changing for me uh, when I was barely 14. I had been extremely unrighteous and unholy for several years, ensconced in the Allegheny County Juvenile Court System of Pittsburgh for two or three years running when I had my conversion. And when I went to church, I began to sense that we were all suffering from a kind of hippie hangover from the late 60s, you know, love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. God is my chummy friend, you know. And I just knew there was something really saccharine, superficial, ersatz about this. And so I'm looking for the real deal. And I hear Dr. Sproul give a series of talks on the holiness of God that ended up becoming his best-selling book years later. But it rocked my world like Isaiah's was rocked. And so I, I, I read and I studied and I listened and learned. And he was quoting from this book written by a German theologian, Rudolf Otto, back in 1917, Das Heilige. It had been translated into English and published by Oxford University, The Idea of Holiness. And Otto also defined holiness in a way that was close, but kind of no cigar. He described holiness in terms of our experience of it. That is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. That is, it's fascinating. It also causes us to tremble, but it's a mystery. Like it was for Moses at the burning bush. He just had to stare at the burning bush because it was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And yet he had to turn away as well because it represented the presence of God. And then I'm thinking years later, that is so good in terms of describing how we experience holiness, but just like righteousness is not the same as holiness, as the king in the palace is not the same as the priest in the sanctuary, we, we, we distinguish to unite, but we distinguish in order to avoid confusing. And so I went in search and I found in scripture something that was distinctive, that you alone are holy. Holy is his name and no one else's. And so in Genesis, I point out in the book, what I discovered in my own research, that holiness occurs only once in all 50 chapters. When God sanctifies the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, the sign of the covenant that he makes with man, male and female, which they break in the next chapter. And so they commit spiritual suicide. They commit mortal sin or what we call original sin. God had breathed his life into them and they basically, you know, the death of the soul, as the catechism calls it, they committed mortal sin. And so original sin is what they transmit to all of us, which is not total depravity, the way Protestants say, but it's a total, a total deprivation of God's holiness, of sanctifying grace, of the Holy Spirit. And so throughout Genesis, Abraham's described as righteous, upright, so is Noah, Isaac, and others, but nobody's called holy. And so in Exodus, there's this explosion of holiness. 98 times Kadosh occurs in one form or another in the 40 chapters of Exodus, beginning with take your shoes off, Moses, for the ground that you stand on is holy ground. And so there's the holy vestments, the holy tabernacle, the holy sacrifices, the Ark of the Covenant is holy. All of these things are holy, but Israel's called to be holy, but it isn't yet. Aaron is called to be holy, but after the golden calf, he's not that close. And so as you continue on reading into Leviticus, you have the holiness code, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. But what's implied is be holy 
as opposed to being defiled and idolatrous as you have been since you were in Egypt. And that's the message also of Ezekiel 20, verses 1 to 42, if you study that oracle that Ezekiel gives. And so I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Bottom line, I found out from Rabbi Joshua Berman, who's a brilliant Orthodox rabbinic Bible scholar, and he points out that in the New Testament, sanctity is all over the place. People are called saints, but in the Old Testament, nobody is. I'm like, well, that's wrong. But I looked at the Hebrew, and I'm like, okay, he's got a point. The only time people are referred to as saints is actually in Daniel 7, but it's only after the Son of Man comes on the clouds of glory to the Ancient of Days to be given a kingdom that is universal and everlasting. And that, of course, is the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. But in Daniel's oracle, he turns around and entrusts this universal, everlasting kingdom to, quote, the saints of the Most High, but only after they have faithfully endured much suffering. And I'm thinking, well, no wonder. I mean, that's the exception that proves the rule, because not until the incarnation, until the Paschal mystery, until his death, resurrection, and ascension, is the power of divine holiness released. And so around that time, this was back in the 90s, I came across a paragraph in the catechism that had been newly, newly released. I cited at the beginning of the book, because of all of the optional definitions of holiness, I finally found one that distilled my own research, the results of my own study. In 2809, we read, the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery, period. It goes on to say what is revealed of his holiness in creation and history, scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. And then it cites Isaiah 6, because this is what Isaiah and the seraphim witnessed was the glory of God. But it's interesting because the holiness is off limits. It's the inaccessible center. It isn't like God is just kind of clutching. No, God is holy other. Holiness is his alone. And it's represented by the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, which was off limits, even to Aaron and the subsequent high priests who would only minister in the outer court or the holy place. Then they were allowed in once a year on the Day of Atonement, and quickly they had to sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats and then skedaddle because they were not yet sanctified. Fast forward, you see the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the child to be born will be called holy. Full stop. Press pause. You know, mm. allow yourself to kind of see what should have been obvious but was sort of hiding in plain view from most people. It's like the incarnation is the single greatest breakthrough. I mean, John Paul talked about Eucharistic amazement, but we can add to that incarnational amazement, that the creator of the world becomes a zygote, an embryo, a newborn infant. And this inaccessible attribute of God that belongs to him alone finally begins to spill out, not just to the angels in heaven who had achieved glory, but to those who now are going to end up being redeemed by Christ. And fast forward again to the resurrection in Matthew 27. From verse 50 on, we have this thing that for me was another eureka moment because it's an obscure reference where Matthew alone of the four evangelists describes how after Jesus' resurrection, all of these tombs surrounding Jerusalem were opened and the saints of the Old Testament were seen. Like, what happened there? Well, they were seen for a short while 
after Jesus had descended into Hades or Sheol in the Hebrew, Abraham's bosom or whatever. And when he came back, he took the souls of the faithful departed of the Old Testament and brought them with him. And they served temporarily as witnesses of this dramatic event. Everything pivots. And then with the ascension of Jesus, as Paul would say in Ephesians, the ascension brings Jesus takes captivity captive. Uh, another way of describing it, I suppose, would be to say Jesus repopulated heaven after he ascended therein. And why? Because all of the visions of heaven that you find in the Old Testament, angels alone, no humans, after the resurrection and ascension, suddenly you have the visions of John of the highest heaven. And who's singing holy, holy, holy? Well, in Isaiah, it's only the seraphim. But in Revelation 4, verse 8, it's the 24 elders, it's the living creatures, it's the angels, but it's the martyrs, and all of the faithful who have gone into the presence of God in their own state of disembodied glory. And so the thought that we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus said this about the Spirit, which was not yet given because he had not yet been glorified, there in John 7, 39. So it's like, we take so much grace for granted. We assume there always have been saints, when in fact, what has happened in the last 2,000 years is the single greatest revolution in the history of world religions. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but in a way that surpasses the highest hopes of even the, the holiest Hebrews. And so we're like little kids, spoiled brats, you know, called to be saints, but we take all of the grace of the sacraments and the saints for granted. We ought to go back and just kind of think more clearly about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of what? Saints. Not just angels, but saints. And then the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I mean, at that point, our hearts ought to be racing if we only could grasp the mysteries that we're professing. And so, in a nutshell, that's the, that's the theoretical framework of the book, tracing it through salvation history. That begins with the definition of holiness that I find to be the most precisely true and accurate. But it also then ends up, you know, I, I flesh out throughout the book, especially towards the end, what can we do practically to achieve this holiness? If holiness is a property that belongs to God alone, then we have got to become his property. We have got to allow him to possess us in a way that will communicate to us the holiness that had only been communicated to the tabernacle, to the altar, to the ark, to the vestments, to the sacrifices, and so on. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I think of Emmaus Road and how Jesus, on his first day back from the dead, decides to waste most of those hours leading two lengthy Bible studies, one for hours and miles with two people who don't even recognize him, and then that evening, Easter Sunday night, with the 11 and all of the others, beginning with the Moses and the law and the prophets, to show how it was necessary for the Christ to suffer to enter into his glory. And it just strikes me that holiness is the key, that the resurrection is what, unlocked, is, is what is unlocked by holiness. And so if we get holiness right, everything else will fall into place. But if we get holiness wrong, I think whatever else we do right will almost be accidental or fragmentary. And so getting it right is the key. And one last thought, when you think about Clopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, 
They were disciples, just like Peter and the other 10. They weren't ignorant of scripture. They'd heard Jesus preaching and teaching for years, but not until his death and resurrection and ascension do you have to do something like interpretive reverse engineering. Now you've got to read it all backwards. You've got to start with the Paschal Mystery and see the eruption of holiness that the Holy Spirit will bring at Pentecost and realize, wow. I mean, they were almost, the patriarchs and the prophets were almost like children of God in utero, whereas we've experienced something of a rebirth, you know, that is just so blasé because, you know, it's just all we've ever known. And a little historical perspective, a little bit of a biblical worldview has transformed this understanding for me and has in, intensified my own sense of urgency. Not that I've got to get bigger and better and more righteous on my own, because that's, I mean, we can keep the commandments, but to become holy, uh, you almost have to become smaller and closer to our Lord and to our Lady and much humbler and aware of how utterly unholy we are, you know? And so at the end of this, I just would say, you know, we are unworthy, but we are not ungrateful. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, that one of the things you said in there that we're kind of, we almost push ourselves away from what holiness is when it is so accessible to us in the sacraments. And Father Rich, that makes me think one of the first conversations we had, you know, five years ago. And I think maybe it's one of her first episodes. You said, if people really understood what heaven was like, being in the eternal chorus of the holy, 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 would people really go after that? Because so many people, I think, in our modern world have this kind of Hellenistic Greek view of heaven as, hey, man, I've made it. I get whatever I want. I'm going to have this you know, eternal feast. But to really look at what holiness is and what Dr. Han described in this you know, great choir of angels who really wants that kind of holiness? Who really wants to that have that kind of humility to be before the throne of God and to be um, completely in awe of his presence and not really get like the personal satisfaction that you would see in maybe like, you know, Greek or even Islamic thing where I get, you know, this or that. I, it's about receiving, you know? Um, so to the idea of like, do people actually want holiness I think goes back to the question of that they don't even know what holiness actually is. And I think that's why it's important that you're putting this book out, Dr. Han, is to really contextualize what is the goal that we're all after. And that's why that's why the sense of encounter is so important and coming to know God, you know, and it's it's that catechetical approach, come to know, love and serve God. But the sense of knowledge, like that's what Ezekiel in, in the reference from uh, chapter 20 is, is like what God's doing is manifesting his glory. God is manifesting his holiness and <clears throat> that we can come into some form of intellectual contact with that. And it is most desirable. And, and it really reaches down to the very core essence of our being existentially responding. There, there is no, like it, it involves our will without a doubt, but like when you're exposed to something so beautiful, something so true, something so good and transcendent, it, it's an encounter that changes everything. And I loved, Dr. Han, when you were sharing your conversion experience and 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 as you're building up the catechetical framework and the and really the uh the outline of your your book, our hearts do race. And I'm and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, oh my gosh, like my baptism. 
my baptism is so important and my heart's racing now because God is is sharing this. I'm coming to know him and he's he's sharing his name like my my name is being conformed and and that that's knowledge and and so it it's just the mystery is unfolding and it's not exhausted, you know, and, and it's, it's beautiful. I love, I loved how you built that up and I'm sitting here listening and, and my heart is literally racing, thinking about my baptism. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Clopas and his companion did not our hearts burn within us as yes. scriptures, you know, and their hearts must've been racing as well as ignited, you know, but I, I also think of uh, hearts on fire, you know, and then the tongues of fire that yes. come when the Holy spirit descends it's one thing to come to a knowledge of this. And that's, that's mm. a, in fact, I think for those of us who have intellects, it's, it's essential. But as Paul reminds the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So therefore stay ignorant? No, but realize that coming to know the truth is one thing, but coming to recognize that the content of the truth is love. Love, that is the holiness of God. And I think it's important not to start with love because we could end up not as saints, but spoiled brats. But when you realize that this love is all demanding because mm. it's pulling us out of ourselves, not just Israel out of Egypt, it's a kind of extraction exodus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, okay, he loves us just the way we are unconditionally, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. But it's his love that will transform us like fire, you know, a, a, whole, a hard, cold lead bar. You know, what's it good for? Well, you know, to whack somebody, but you put it into a fire. And as Aquinas points out, it assumes the properties of the fire. That's what becoming a saint is all about. It's not self-made saints ever. You know, that kind of pride would lead to the greatest fall of all, going back to our first parents as well. But I do think that the catechesis needs to lead to a contemplation where you're not just reciting Catholic talking points or lists of things you've memorized to teach others, which is essential, but where you begin to ponder every petition of the Our Father or every one of the 12 articles of the Creed, and you realize this is gold. These are diamonds, emeralds, you know, sapphires, rubies, and all of the rest. My dad was a jeweler when I grew up. He just, I took the rings for granted that he was designing, but I think my Father in heaven has designed things that are just far more beautiful. And at the same time, far more difficult to become holy. You know, for Protestants, you know, 50 years ago, you're already holy because you've been declared to be holy. And there's something true about that for Catholics as well, because through baptism and the sacraments, we're receiving something that we have not generated ourselves. But after 36 years, you know, as I'm closing in on 40 years as a Catholic, I realized it's truer than I realized back then. But it's harder too, you know. And, and and to become holy, it isn't like, well, I've just now got a I've got to climb Mount Everest. No, I've got to <laughs> allow God to climb all of my peaks, you know, and, and kind of level the mountains and make straight the paths for him to reach me in my own brokenness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. I was thinking the the passage, uh, I must decrease and he must increase and like the importance of of that and and one of my favorite prayers is the litany of humility because to me it's a barometer of just how much in need i am of god amen amen um that that others may be chosen that i mean all the spirit of the world that 
uh, that we see in media, that we see around us in our jobs, that we see on the road, just driving, you've got my space, right? Um, like all these things that, that for an, for an order for us to allow God to possess us, like you said, like that's, that's the barometer. Do we want attention from others? Do we want to be lifted up? You know, I was, uh, giving a talk with my wife, um, on Cana box at my parish and they said, well, here, you sit up here by the priest. And then the priest came, I said, do you always sit in places of honor? <laughs> He's a good friend of mine, no, but, but it does, it, it does recount, right. That, you know, um, that, that this, this is the mentality. This is the disposition that we must maintain to allow God to fully live in us and, and be, present to the world in that holiness that we talked about. You know, I love the fact that you just quoted John the Baptist at the beginning, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. Mm -hmm. And yet you think of what our Lord said about John, he's the greatest to have ever been born of woman. Like, mm -hmm. seriously? Okay. But that's a righteousness that comes from the Old Testament. But then Jesus goes on to say, you know, that the least in the kingdom of heaven will surpass John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, now you've overstated things you know but he's the lord he's given us his word that what he imparts to us exceeds what john the baptist had and it's like okay we're gonna have to go back and recalculate things that we thought we understood and the path to holiness again as you said it's so much about allowing the lord to possess us you know and you think of the demonic counterfeit the parody of demonic possession and of course we would want to be freed and delivered from all of that but you can see from a counterfeit what the original, what the real thing looks like. And that's the Blessed Virgin Mary. Be it done unto me according to your word. And it's like, okay. And then our Marian consecration, every act of consecration, even our morning offering is basically signing over the deed of my entire being to God once again. Well, I've never heard it put like that, that Our Lady's uh, fiat really is the the counterpoint to a demonic possession. And it's so true. That's just a, a wonderful thought. Um, you know, in, in kind of preparing for this and, and reading about the book and, and thinking about holiness, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I think this is, you really trying to understand what holiness is, lead, led to a thought to me that I think that's a great proof that once you really truly understand holiness, I think it can almost serve as a proof of a purgatory, Right. And your differentiation, your distinction between righteousness and abundance, right? Those are all things that the world would point to as signs of holiness, right? But you can have these, you know, nothing imperfect can get into heaven, right? And the concept of purgatory, I think, leads to that that concept of really achieving that true holiness. Could you speak on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, you just reminded me of what Paul states, just matter-of-factly, in 1 Corinthians 3, and that is, They'll be saved, but only as through fire, and they will suffer loss. Well, I mean, suffering loss through fire has got to be painful. And yet the assurance that this is purificatory, that this is going to perfect me, gives the joy to the souls in purgatory, even as they're experiencing the pain of a, a fire, you know, that is preparing them for heaven. But when you look at the visions of John in the apocalypse, fire is far more frequently associated with heaven. Uh, the fire of God's consuming love. The fire of purgatory would probably be kind of cold to the saints in heaven. The fires of hell would be freezing to them. 
the people in hell would hate it, but they'd hate heaven more. You know, and so when you see the image of a lake of fire, you're almost watering down the, the flame, you know, and in the process, I think we also recognize then that this idea of fire is why are the seraphim shouting holy, holy, holy? They're the highest of the nine choirs, but literally in Hebrew, zeraf means fiery or burning ones. And so they're the ones who are most, who are the closest to God and most proximity. And so they're the most combustible of all of the, the choirs. But there is a sense in which I'm convinced that, you know, when you get to the point where you want God to possess you, then the fire that Clopas describes, did not our hearts burn within us? You know, this has got to become a signal that conversion for us is a, uh, is is obviously ongoing. It's it's lifelong, but it needs to be daily, but it also needs to be different each day. You know, one size doesn't fit all with, with our six kids or our 21 grandkids, or, you know, for myself from day to day, from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday. And, and so the recognition that, uh, okay, I've got to be open to God's holiness, I think fits also with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God for you. You know, and when you hear that invitation, wait, what did you say? This is the will of God for you? Go on. What's my career? What's my college major? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to park? You know, and we we kind of confuse the will of God with the area of freedom where God the Father doesn't want his kids to be puppets or robots. You know, he, he wants us to be open to whatever inspiration or graces might come to surprise us. But he also wants us to act upon the love that he's communicated to our hearts. So, Paul, go on. What is the will of God? This is the will of God for you, namely your sanctification. Well, that's disappointing. I mean, go on and give me the list of God's will for me. No, your sanctification. And then he adds, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. And the Greek word is porneia. So we can kind of deduce what that means for all of us in this age. And, and so on the one hand, what we've got to will is what God wills. We don't pray to change God's will. We pray for God to change our will, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But once we will what God wills, we want him to sanctify us in a way that we can't do for ourselves. The last thought is, well, what is it that God alone can do that we can't do for ourselves, but we have to do it by willing what he wills, our holiness? And I think it has to do not only with penance or like Advent and Lent, penitential seasons, but embracing all of the little crosses every day that nobody notices, uh, including ourselves, unfortunately. But in the process, we discover that the redemptive suffering is not only the, the weirdest aspect of Catholic belief and practice, it in some ways is the central facet of the hope diamond that we receive in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because suffering does not separate us from Christ the way we fear. Suffering is what conforms us to Christ, little by little by little. You know, I said earlier that justice and sanctity are not the same. Paul talks always about justification, and only justification, in Romans 3, 4, and 5. But once he introduces baptism in Romans 6, then the subject shifts to sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And again, I must have read Romans 500 times before. It, it just it became obvious. It's been hiding in plain view 
justification through Christ, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, who's mentioned 18 times in Romans 8 at the climax, more than all of the other references to the Holy Spirit and the rest of Romans combined. And it's like, God wants to sanctify me more than I want him to. But he alone is capable of doing that. And I'm capable of doing a lot of things, especially succumbing to the pride and the stupidity of thinking, you know, God, I could, I could become the best version of myself and thus become a saint. And it's like, no, you can become a good citizen of America, of Ohio, of Steubenville, but you can't become a saint. Not unless you open yourself, unless you're possessed. And the real proof of love is loving God even to the contempt of self, as Augustine put it. Loving God through the crosses that come each day. And so redemptive suffering for me becomes the real test of, of authentic faith. Suffering alone doesn't do anything. But love alone doesn't either. It's just warm, fuzzy feelings. But suffering is what proves that love is genuine. Suffering is also what perfects love, purifies it, and getting back to purgatory, that's precisely why you're experiencing the love of God that purifies all of our false, disordered loves that we end up dying with in a state of grace, but still with a lot of resi residual effects of our own disordered behavior. You know, I'm thinking about St. Francis throwing himself in the fire and, and St. Lawrence being grilled and, you know, like the leverage of their their bodies, you know, being exposed to such things and and being such a testimony of faith. And this quote from St. Ignatius of Loyola, I, I just absolutely love reflecting on like this divine flame, this 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 light that you're describing that is just burning um, even in the midst of heaven, like that is the greatest, most burning power manifested. I just loved your description of that. I've never heard of it like that. Um, <clears throat> St. Ignatius expressed, do you want to become a great saint? Ask God to send you many sufferings. This is the kicker. The flame of divine love never rises higher than when fed with the wood of the cross, which the infinite charity of the Savior used to finish his sacrifice. All the pleasures of the world are nothing compared with the sweetness found in the gall and vinegar offered to Jesus Christ. That is hard and painful things endured for Jesus Christ and with Jesus Christ. I just, I love that sense of there's no uh, greater catalyst to it, an increase of the flame and the power of that divine flame than the wood of the cross and how Jesus goes before us manifesting the fullness of our humanity uh, redeemed and, and participating in that, in that sanctification process. What's happening is that holiness is manifesting to all of the nations by way of this baptismal identity of those inflamed by the power of the spirit as a result of Pentecost. That's amazing. Father Richard, you know, I think of the Holy spirit symbolized by fire but as you remind us through baptism, it's also symbolized by water. Mm. Holiness is that increasing, uh, it's a deepening. You know, you think of the old expression, still waters run deep. You know, yes. whereas a babbling brook, you know, it's a refreshing stream. But I feel like I'm much more <laughs> of a babbling brook than the waters <laughs> that you find in genuine saints. But it's also the case that a blazing fire might be crackling loud, but it's the silent blue flame that is the <sighs> of all. Yes. And it strikes me that, that as still waters run deep, so redemptive suffering mm. is often very slow. Uh, that is to say, when I when I watched my mother die, 
she never entered the Catholic Church, but she discovered a joy through suffering that she heard me describe theoretically, but she experienced concretely and practically. Wow. The same yeah. thing. My dad was an agnostic, but only through suffering did he end up becoming a little child of God who learned to pray for the first time in his life in his last oh, few Oh, beautiful, man. Oh, and, I, and I just, I think that saints end up discovering that when they get to heaven, it's a divine commencement. It's a graduation. That's all saints are. They're the ones who graduated from the school of suffering. Yes. And that's all the people in hell are. They might have more doctorates. They might end up accumulating more wealth, greater prestige and property. But at the end of the day, they dropped out of the school of suffering. They gave mm -hmm. up on God. They didn't realize that God does more with less. And that's why if you're not going to die as a martyr, chances are you're going to die in slow motion. And you're like, oh, no, I don't want to see my mother with stage four bone cancer for days, for weeks, for months. Unless, of course, I'm seeing in her brokenness, a joy I never saw in all 87 years of her life, you know. And I, and I just think God is preparing us for something in the future that I don't want to know about. But I suspect that he's giving us additional graces because we're going to have additional crosses. Yeah, I, I love the imagery in uh, in Dante where, you know, typically, you know, you see an image of, of hell and it's fiery and, you know, pitchforks. And, um, but in Dante, it shows Satan in the lowest rings of hell frozen in a lake for eternity. So far from God that the heat and the warmth all originates with God. And the further you get, like you said, with that analogy, that the closer you get in the seraphim, the closer they are to that heat source, that really that hell is that, that freezing separation from the divine warmth, from the divine light, and from the divine source of all that exists. Excellent. So I, I always thought that was a really interesting and kind of counterintuitive image that most people don't really understand that probably mm -hmm. is more close to the truth than what you would see in, you know, most pious art. Yeah, extremely yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me also of uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis and how <clears throat> the people that lived really far out in the country were... were ultimately blaming everybody that was moving closer to the point where, you know, they, they can go and encounter somebody from heaven. And the, and the fact that they just possessed their own thoughts and opinions about things when they face love, this firing light, this reality, this supra reality of, of this light and this love. And yet they still held on to their personal beliefs, their personal, you know, uh, you know, antagonizing uh, realities of their life, as opposed to just releasing them and suffering through them, you know, and learning from the school of love. You know, I, I wrote an essay about a year ago that just appeared last month in a collection published by Ignatius Press entitled By Strange Ways. A dozen intellectuals describe their conversion. And of course, I described ours in Rome Sweet Home with Kimberly, but it was a very popular account. This was a much more more of a description of an intellectual and academic pilgrimage. But I, I basically summarized it in terms of back then, I had this love of truth and I would follow it wherever it would lead, even if it led to professional suicide to, to kill my own career. But now, you know, on the other side of it all, as I, again, mentioned the, the narrative arc of my own ex life experience, I realized it's one thing to love the truth. It's another thing to discover the truth of love, that the content of truth is not just all of the doctrines you have to memorize, but the logic that holds all of the doctrines and all of the moral requirements and all of the sacraments and everything that we profess. 
the the only logic that integrates and unites them all is a love that is beyond knowledge and a love that in a certain sense is stronger than death but a love that is longing to manifest the fact that it is stronger than death and the only way to prove that is by dying dying to yes. self today yes. tomorrow the next day but eventually just dying so that in imitation of christ but even more participating in christ mm -hmm. when we die we'll end up not losing our lives we'll end up giving our lives back to him like he gave his life to us because up until jesus even the the most righteous saints fear death but as saint athanasius points out after the resurrection even our women and children have a bravery that the stoics envy you know because they just don't fear death they don't fear suffering they see it sort of like the chisel in the hand of the divine sculptor whereby he hammers off all of our hardness and gets us ready to get home yeah speaking of the stoics there's a thing from uh, marcus aurelius that i love you know people naturally um abhor suffering they they're revolted by it it pushes that away and marcus aurelius talks about the the parallel between a seed or a fruit and a human body that even even old age and sickness starts to become reviling to the youth and the healthy but it's only through that old age and through that wrinkling and through that dying and the mm. decaying can a new plant grow? And it's the same thing with holiness. I mean, you really can never be fully holy unless you go through that redemptive suffering process, which to the average person on the street, you know, is the reason that we have Botox and hair dye and everything else in the world to hold on to youth forever in that avoidance of that natural decay, the dying of the grain, right? Um, and that's holiness, is, is looking that natural arc of life in the face and being joyful for it and knowing that that is the journey that even though a fruit rots it's rotting allows for the seed to grow and that's the same thing that happens to our human bodies but so many people avoid suffering and they avoid the, the even thought of death so much that they think that they're going to live forever that it deprives them of a proper um ponderance of what their life really means that resonates so well and delacross like i'm sitting here thinking about the conversations that we have with your son Vinny, you know and and like it was all about the sense of, of Vinny just not wanting to suffer and and his just this challenge of like you know god it, it does god exist you know like why would he want me to suffer like it's just it's down to that youthful kind of deposit of of unknowing and and it just really touches my heart what we're talking about right now because it is this is revolutionary i mean th this catechesis is just so important right now and this conversation is so important for the next generation because we're the ones having conversation with our kids and bringing them up in the practice of the faith so that they mature properly you know i'm reminded of the question i sometimes get who's your favorite child and i'm quick to say i don't have a favorite but of course i do i my favorite grandchild of the 21 is whoever i'm with you know <laughs> and i'm tempted to say you know what is your favorite book and i would say well this is holy is his name you know <laughs> because that's the most recent one i've been working on for the last few years but i i, I was talking reading recently uh jeff miras who has i think probably read at least three quarters of my 40 plus books. And he described this as the single most important of all of the things that he's mm -hmm. read for me. And when I read him, it was like looking, looking at it through a different set of eyes and I realized, duh. I mean, this is so obviously mm -hmm. true, but it's taken me a long time 
And it's going to take me even longer to actually attain to the content of the truth of real sanctity. But I mean, I, I'm just, I hate to say this, but uh, being a Catholic celebrity is no fun. It's not something I sought for, you know, and mm -hmm. I suppose I enjoy it more than I should, but I also don't enjoy it a lot. And, and I think that, well, you know, we all want to be Catholics. No, we want to be saints. We're Catholics. We don't need celebrity cults, you know, personality cults and that kind of thing. In fact, if anything, they're distractions or temptations or impediments. But at the end of the day, God is so kind because, you know, just as we don't remember the pain of childbirth, you know, but our mothers were practically crushing us in the birth canal when we were coming. We're not like, oh, this is like a roller coaster. You know, so <laughs> our rebirth will also be crushing like that. Mm. And mm -hmm. the thought that also, the last thing I want to just throw out there is people actually don't avoid suffering. Uh, I was at the Drake Hotel with Kimberly last month for a conference, and uh, we're looking out the window on, on Lake Michigan. And like at 530 in the morning, there are dozens of people jogging, you know, at 6, <laughs> 7, 7.30, thousands of people who are suffering, you know, mm -hmm. nautilus, no pain, no gain. But the people who suffer do it strictly for their natural results, the physical benefits. And I'm thinking, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Well, it's exactly as my mom would say, bass backwards, you know, you've got to strive, you've got to suffer for the supernatural benefits because the mortality rate remains 100%. None of us are going to get out of here alive, and none of us are going to be able to take the sleep bodies, you know, into the next life. We'll end up with resurrected bodies that will pertain more to our holiness than they will to our fitness. And Hallelujah. You know, it just redirect, re-harness all of that misspent energy. Mm. Now, there is one good benefit of being a Catholic celebrity is that you get to get featured on great apps like Hollow, which is one of our sponsors, right? None. <laughs> Sadly, Dr. Han, we have not achieved, achieved that level of uh, esteem and notoriety, <laughs> but we are a sponsor. We are a partner with Hollow. And um, Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the world. And you can find Dr. Han and so many other great you know, Catholic teachers and leaders on this app. So if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash hollow, you could download this app and try it for free. Go and check out Dr. Hans works on there. Go out and check some of the sleep aids. Go out and check some of the novenas they have and the prayer resources. It is a wonderful app with guided meditations, sleep aids, scripture, uh, sacred music, and so much more. Again, catholictalkshow.com forward slash hollow. I also wanted to give a shout out to our other sponsor, which is Exodus 90. Now, Exodus 90 is a program that certainly can help you lean into the suffering uh, through practices like mortification. So like Dr. Han was saying, so many people suffer for the, you know, the vain effects of their physical nature, but mortification helps you suffer and contextualize your suffering so that you can orient yourself towards Christ so that you can allow him to possess you and become the man he intends you to be. And that's what Exodus 90 helps you do. It's a program that helps men achieve through suffering, fraternity, and prayer, greater closeness to Christ through some simple practices that this group helped develop in seminary and are now unleashed on the world. And over 35,000 men have tried this program. So if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Exodus, you can download the app now and look at all these resources and see how it can help you achieve true freedom from the things that are holding you back in this modern society that wants to keep you squashed and wants to keep you far from God. So check those out today.
You know, the importance of the contemplative life and the ascetical life, you know, our partners with Exodus and Hallow, and down to what Dr. Scott Hahn was expressing to us before and and the experience of God's holiness, moving us to the depths of like contemplation and and the joy of being before God and the throne of his glory, crying out, holy, 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 that that depth of of consciousness, that the contemplative nature of that, you know, these these apps and these programs, there's no institution like it's back to what Sheila was saying before, like this is institutionalized in our Catholic faith. You know, the poverty, the chastity, the obedience, the ascetical life, the contemplative life, like what what institution would do something like that? And, <laughs> and you know, for what reason, you know, and and uh, either they're either they're right or terrible marketing. Exactly, <laughs> there's only one of those two options. But there's joy. There's just like supreme joy. The fullness of God's joy is there, you know, like in in, in moving through that process and. And this has been a joy to connect with you, Dr. Scott Hahn, here at the talk show. And uh, I just wanted to finish with one question for you. You know, your subtext, the title of the book, Holy is His Name, and the subtitle, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. Um, you know, you've you've shared, this has been a long time coming, and, and you've, you've read things, you know, 20 years ago. And and it's been a part of your journey. Now it's like manifesting in this in this one book. I'm curious, how has this transformed your personal life? Like in and how you are as a as a man, as a father, as a grandfather. Um, you know, how has it touched the depths of you in, in relationship to writing this book? Well, I mean, at one level, as a father, it has rocked me. You know, and that's why I dedicated it to uh, one of our six kids, and that is Father Jeremiah, who was just ordained to the priesthood, received the sacrament of holy orders wow. a year and a half ago. Amen. And Congratulations. That, of, yes. of all of the books, of all of the things that I've accomplished, to actually see one of our sons, you know, enter into holy orders was, um, wow, let thy servant depart in peace, you know. Uh, on the other hand, I would also say, I feel challenged to my core now more than I ever have. Um, uh, the book was published by Emmaus Road, which is the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center. We started it 20 years ago. I had no idea we would end up with over 40 teammates. I never thought in the world that the university would sell two acres of their property across from the main entrance and allow us to build a 25,000 square foot building. And, and so I remember wrestling with this, wrestling with God, you know, and the thing that came to me was, Scott, if you had no fear of failure, what would you want to accomplish for me? Mm. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty big if. <laughs> you know, what if I had no fear of failure? I'm practically defined by my fears, you know. <laughs> and then the Lord said, yeah, but you've already begun to see holiness is not what you're going to accomplish for me. But what would you accomplish for me? What would you strive for? And I'm like, I want to build a, a kind of headquarters where we can get priests and lay people transformed but I, I'm going to make a deal with you. You know, if I flop, I'm going to flop for you. And in exchange for my flopping, I want you to make me a saint and nothing less. You know, it's the only thing for which each of us was made. It's the only way we're going to end up being a true success through faithfulness. And so, you know, I, I would say, please pray for my team, for the St. Paul Center. Please pray for my family, especially Father Jeremiah, who I dedicated the book to. Uh, and also, I mean, <laughs> 
to get the now here for a moment, go to stpaulcenter.com and we can offer the book to you for a, a discount, I think, that will definitely profit the kingdom more than buying it from Amazon will. <laughs> yeah, and I'll make sure that there's a link down below. Uh, it'll take you right to the St. Paul Center and you could buy this book, Holy is Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. Uh, and go check this out. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And again, it's something that so many people... You know, you always hear holy, holy, holy this. I want to be holy this. But have you ever really pondered what holiness means and what it can mean for you and how you can allow God to lead you there? So we can't recommend the book enough. And uh, Dr. Han, it's been wonderful having you on and talking about this. Uh, really class the joint up here. We appreciate it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a total joy and a privilege for me. Thank you, Ryan and Father Richard. Thank you, you Dr. Know, Scott Hahn. And before we go... You know, we were talking about God's will for you to respond to that universal call to holiness. And if this has helped you in any way, make sure that you're subscribing, clicking the bell on all of our platforms, sharing the good news of the Catholic Talk Show, and we'll see you next week. God bless.